we're going to get back into the saddle. Hopefully you had a good New Year uh, and a new a good week off for the Christmas and uh, holiday and everything. And uh, it's already the coldest day in the in the year of the year. And uh, so you can take that for whatever dad joke you want to use that for. Okay. Uh, Romans 9, if you will, we're back into this here, and actually we're down to verse number 19 now, and we are at the third objection that gets raised. Verse 19, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault, for who hath resisted his will? So we come here to this third objection being raised uh, in Paul's uh, Acts ministry, if you will, as he's dealing with the nation of Israel, he has begun to lay out the new dispensation, and in laying out that information and in laying out that truth, the issue is, is that God has accursed, he's cut off, he's separated, he's set aside, he's interrupted, he, however you in your mind think about it, he's interrupted Israel's program. So when that happens, and Paul is now educating the Jews about what's going on, because what their program was supposed to do didn't happen. Now, all right, so what's going on? He's educating them. They begin to raise objections. That's why chapter 9 starts in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. They're calling him a liar. Don't you see we have all of the canon of Scripture that says we are God's people. We are, verse 4 and 5, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Don't you know that's ours? And Paul's like, yes, it is, but God's not doing that, doing that. He's interrupted that. So the first objection is raised, verse 6 there, not, a, um, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. So they say, see, the, God, the word of God is unreliable. It isn't operating. It takes none effect. It's not having an impact. It's, you, we can't trust it. And Paul says, no. Look at your history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's been working all along, and his eternal purpose, his elective purpose, the purpose of election, and the purpose here of what he's doing has been working all along. So then verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And the idea there of is there unrighteousness with God isn't, that God is unrighteous in who he is and his character and, and so forth. It's rather God's not being fair with us. He's not, his dealing with us isn't fair. He, he's, he's not, he's not, we want God just to be fair to everybody. So Paul, two-part answers that objection, first with Moses to prove that God can, has the right to claim an escape clause, which is, he's a merciful God, so what can he be? He can be merciful to whom he will be merciful. Then he pulls in Pharaoh. Second part, Pharaoh. Well, God also can have a secondary issue, a secondary purpose. Look at that, preaching so hot already, it's right out of his hands. You know? <laughs> Woo! I know it's a little chilly in here, but my goodness. Uh, Pharaoh, look at what he did with Pharaoh. There's a secondary issue happening with Pharaoh and with God doing what he's doing, and that has to do with God dealing with the adversary, the, the satanic policy of evil. And God has every right to do that. So then in verse 19, third objection, what shall, then wilt thou, thou wilt say then unto me. Notice how Paul's anticipating what they're going to say to him. Now, you and I, we get these same objections in various forms, but when you whittle them down, they're this way. 
when we talk to people about, hey, God interrupted Israel's program, and he's doing this now with the church, the body of Christ, and the Gentiles, and they say, how can you, anti-Semitic, you don't like the Jews? No, that has nothing to do with it. It's rather, here's how God's working. So this third objection now has two parts to it, objection. Its objection is in two parts. And so then Paul's going to do what? Answer it in two parts. And he says, verse 19, why doth he yet find fault? So there's the first one. Why is he still finding fault? And then the second one, the second part of the objection is who hath resisted his will? Okay? And you begin to think about that. And Paul is going to, in Paul's answer that follows here, in both answers, he really begins to help us understand what the objection is really all about. Okay, when you just read verse 19, it's a troubling passage. It's a difficult one of those, what in the world is he talking about? Well, Paul, there's a two parts to the objection. There's two parts answer to it. And in his answer, he's really going to help us understand what they're objecting to. Notice, if you will, verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? The key in this first part is the word yet. Okay? The idea of yet. Yet, yet ha, in, in the word yet, Y-E-T, one of the components is a timing issue. And it implies the, the continuance from a previous time into the present time. Okay? And that's what he's after here. Why is God, what, they're, what Israel is literally saying is, why is God still treating Israel as accursed? Why is he still saying you're cut off, we're cut off, we're set aside? Why is he still not fulfilling verse 4 and 5, the promises? Why is he not doing that? Who has resisted his will? Look, we're right with you, Paul. Why does he continue to find fault? That idea in that, of, of, that, of yet, God is still continuing even to now, today, in, in, in 2022. <laughs> Next hour's message is, what do you do in 2022? I actually get a rhymer, you know. Usually I can't rhyme them, you know, but this one I get a, an easy rhymer. What, what, why? What's he still doing? Why is he still doing it that way? Why are we cut off? Why are we a cursed? And if you think about how the Jews are going to be thinking about this, watch verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Still the thing form say to the him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Think about that. The protest, the end of verse 20. Why hast thou made me thus? You see, what the Jews are actually saying is, is, well, back up a minute. God through Paul is telling Israel what? I declared you accursed. I declared you set aside. I've declared you into the be of, of no value, of, of done. So the protest is the end of verse 20. Why did you make me this way? See, God, it's not our fault, it's your fault. Why did you make us this way? You made us this way. You did this to us, so it's not our fault. It's whose fault? It's God's fault. Now, he, in his answer, when we get down into verse 30 and 31 and 32, we find out it's really whose fault. It's their fault because of unbelief. But what is their mindset? Their thinking here is what? It's God's fault. God did this. We weren't doing anything wrong. We're not the bad guy. They're the bad. That's why verse 20, he says, nay, but, O man, who? Art thou that replies again? Who do you think you are to be to to be saying this? Who do you think you are to come up and argue with what God's doing? 
Who do you think you are? So it's a timing issue. That's what's going to happen here. God still deems Israel accursed. And that's what the issue is going to be fundamentally. Is why does Israel have to be accursed in order for God to go now do something among the Gentiles? So the great question that we face is, why can't God do both programs at the same time? That's the big... Well, that, you know what? When I hear that question, <laughs> it comes from a lack of understanding of Israel's program. And that's what Paul is going to do here. He's going to answer that. And usually when, people, when I hear that come, and it's come across my email and plate before, it's a lack of understanding of Israel's program, and therefore that bleeds into a lack of understanding of what Paul's saying here, because this passage gets used here. Who, the end of verse 20, verse 19, who hath resisted his will? Think about that. Paul has already demonstrated that what? God's eternal purpose, elective purpose, was to do this with Israel and then to do this with the church, the body of Christ. You know what Israel says? Okay, we got that. We got that. Then God, Paul is demonstrating that God can be what? Merciful to whom he'll be merciful to. Okay, Israel says, we got that. We see that. We got you, Paul. Then he says, Paul demonstrates that, hey, God's got another uh, purpose here in showing the adversary that he's going to lose the heavenly places through the Gentiles. So we've got that. Israel says, okay, we're good to go. We're on board. So if God is doing all of that, then why are we still accursed? Why are we still in our present condition? Why can't God carry out his covenant program, his prophetic program? Why can't he fulfill his promises to, it, to us, Israel, while at the same time taking care of the Gentiles in the new program? Why can't he do that? And that's fundamentally what's happening here. That's fundamentally the issue. So, in the, again... <laughs> That yet, it's a timing-driven thing here. What's happening? Why doth he yet find fault? Paul, we're on board. We got you. We see what he's doing. We're good. So then why can't he do both programs? I'll finish up ours and at the same time go out here and take care of the Gentiles, do that, why can't he come along and just suspend how he's treating us, put us back over here on the road, get us done, etc., etc.? Okay? Now Paul's going to answer them. And he gives us great insight in the, in, in the answer here. This is a legitimate objection. Can God do the dispensation of grace and still do Israel's program? That's the question. And really where that comes from in most modern day chit-chat is because of how the book of Acts is. Okay? In Acts 7, the dispensation changed, period. In Acts 7, with the stoning of Stephen. The dispensation Israel falls in Acts 7. Okay? Dispensationally, Acts 7, boom, they're done. Now, the rest of the book of Acts is the diminishing away. So whatever Peter's doing and Paul's doing, they're doing it because that's what they know to do. Paul's got some work when we get over in Romans 11. We'll see Paul's max ministry of one of provoking Israel to jealousy. Why would he have to do that if God has both programs running at the same time? Which, by the way, he does not. Why? Act 7, dispensation, change, it's done. It's what it is. We, we read about in Acts 9, the conversion of Paul, Saul of Tarsus on the road, because that's what's next to get the new going, but to do what? Cancel, 
you literally see Peter be the main guy, and he drop after Acts 7. You see Paul nowhere, and then all of a sudden he's there, and he becomes, oh, what's going on? What is the book of Acts all about? It has nothing to do with the historical start of the church, the body of Christ. You want to know about the start of the church, the body of Christ, go read our apostle. Acts is a written indictment against Israel that you you blew your chance under your program and you blew your chance under Paul and the new program. You see, that Jew is going to stand in front of the great white throne judgment one day and say, yeah, but we were mistreated. And he's going to go, no, you weren't. You got the book. It's been there all the time. Here's the answer. So when you think about this question of why can't God do both programs, (laughs) first of all, could God do it? Sure he could. He's God. Duh. But it's not how his plan and purpose was to function. Okay? Paul's going to supply the answer of why God can't do this. Why God can't change his dealings with Israel in order to carry out the new program, the, the information revealed to Paul. Now let's think about Israel's argument here for a minute. When they say, why, can't, why does God yet find fault? Who's resisting his will? We're not resisting his will now. We were back there, but right now we're not anymore. We're on board. We see we're not really resisting. Well, Acts 7 says something a little different, doesn't it? Come back to Acts 11. Look at Acts 11. Acts 11. The thing about resisting his will, we'll get into it more as we go through. Look at Acts 11 and look at verse 17. Acts 11, 17. Now, Acts 11 happens after Peter goes to Cornelius and, and the Gentile, okay? Preaches to him the works of righteousness uh, that... Uh, I just had it. Doggone it. Uh, 1035, there it is. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That is completely 180 degrees opposite of what Paul tells us in Titus 3 when it's not by works of righteousness. So Peter's not preaching Paul's gospel. Peter's preaching Peter's gospel, gospel of the kingdom, gospel of circumcision. He goes, it took, it took the Lord three yanks to get Peter to go down there. That vision comes down, Peter objects. Why does Peter object? Because he knows you don't, he wasn't sent to the Gentiles. He knows he's sent over here to, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He knows in Acts 1 that God changed that to you get Israel set. Then you can get out there into everything else. So in Acts eleven seventeen, Peter's on the carpet for going to the Gentile. You know, the church there, they got him up on the carpet. And he says, verse 17, For as much then as God gave them, that's the Gentile, the like gift as he did unto us, that's the little flock. How do you know that? Who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Not everyone in Israel believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but he gave it to us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the little flock. That I, that uh, what I, what was I, that's Peter, that I could withstand God. You know what Peter says? I'm not stopping what God's doing. It's better just to get on with the program and go do what he told me to do, and that's what I did. You see, Acts 11, what is their mentality? Our program is ticking along, but something has happened here because now God just told Peter, the chief apostle, to do what? Don't, Don't say what I say. Don't call what I call clean. Now, don't call unclean, say. Now you're going to, now, now there's a shift. Peter is getting educated to there's a change that has happened. Not happening, it has happened. It's done. See, Pete, Pete's on, Peter is in a, he, he, he's, he's confused. He hasn't had, you know, any of the education yet from Paul. That happens a little later. 
So when you think about how the, Jew, the Jews' argument is that what? We are not standing in his way now. So then why is he still teach, dealing with us this way? And again, that's why that word yet, the timing of it. Why is he yet doing it? Why is he continuing to do this? We're on board. We see what Paul's doing. We're good with that. By the way, were they really on board? No. Second Thessalonians, they persecuted Paul in, ruthlessly to shut him up, to kill him. They're the reason he's in jail most, almost all the time. So they didn't get it. They just are what? They're trying to get their gift, their promises back. Why does he yet? Why does he continue? Still today, even now, why are we accursed? That's the fundamental objection on this third one. Come back to Romans 9. Why can't God do both programs? Why can't he fulfill his promises to Israel and do the work among the Gentiles? So Paul's going to answer them. By the way, in Paul's answer, Romans 9, in Paul's answer, when a component to all of this that comes up, and this is going to be in the second part. Look at verse 25, 9.25. The second component that comes into this, just real quick, as he, hath, as he saith also in Osi, that's Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now that's Hosea 1, first 11 verses there. Because the thing that comes up when, they, when this question about why can't God do both programs, why is he still leaving Israel a curse, is the thought that God is completely done with Israel. The Calvinistic idea, the covenant theologian idea that Israel suffered all of the curses and the church gets all the blessings. He's completely done with, the church, with, with Israel. His focus now is the church. Well, what did Paul just say in verse 25 and 26? No, they're not, he's not done with Israel. You see, he's... But just because he's overdoing something among the Gentiles, just because he says, Israel, you are accursed, that doesn't mean that God is done with Israel. They still have a future hope. And again, now that's going to be in the second part of the answer, but when you raise the question, why can't God do both programs, a, a caveat in it in the Calvinistic covenant theology, Reformed theology mentality is, is, well, he's not doing both because he has completely done dealing with Israel, cut them off completely. He's doing this with the church, and Paul's going to say, not so. Nice try. That's why the covenant theologist, the Reformed theologians, the Reformed believers hate the Apostle Paul. Because everything they think happens, Paul comes along and says, not so. Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> Try it again. And so they, get, they don't like that. God still has, God has not permanently abandoned Israel. And that's a part of the message by Paul. It's part of the answer that we'll see when we get down there. We're not anywhere near there. But that little caveat comes up. Israel, you being a curse is not a permanent situation. The setting aside, the interrupting of Israel's program is not permanent. God will fulfill all of that to you. Just right now, he's doing this among the Gentiles. And really what we see there is the wisdom of God. By calling Israel accursed so that he can go and do something among the Gentiles. And, and I'll be honest with you folks, God's not going to have two programs operate at the same time. Because of what is contained in those programs. So God's telling Israel through Paul, relax. 
I will fulfill all your promises. I will fulfill your program. So don't fear that I'm completely abandoning you. I'm just doing something else. Okay? So Paul is going to connect all of this together here with us in this third objection in these answers. Verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? He's still finding fault. We are okay with what God's doing. We can't stop him. Who's going to resist his will? We can't stop him. So then why? Well, verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you to question and to dispute God? You think you know better than God when it comes to when to start one program and to interrupt another, when to go and deal with a different people group than another. You think you know better? You don't know nothing. <laughs> you don't know Jack. That's what went through my mind. You, and you know what? They don't. That's the thing. They're operating in unbelief. Now watch verse 20 carefully because Paul's going to give the answer here. Shall the thing created say to him that created it? Did I read that right? Hello? <whistles> Wake up. It's only Sunday morning. It's the second, not the first. No, it's what? Formed. Notice it doesn't say created. It says formed us. Can the th Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made us thus? That issue of form. The Calvinists say that before the foundation of the world, God what? Created Israel to do this. No. Paul is saying what? Formed it. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to go to Jeremiah 18 in the potter and the clay business. And we'll get into that next time, okay? He's going to go there to answer this objection. Because Israel's objection, why are you delaying, why are you dealing with us as accursed? And why aren't you fulfilling our program? And why did you make us this way? What do you, why? Paul says, you don't want God to finish your program. Verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Isn't that interesting? The potter has what? The power. Again, this is about form. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 21. Vessel is singular. Now watch verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power unknown, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Do you see vessels is plural now? There's a shift there. Verse 21 does the potter have power over the clay? Well, yeah, he does. He can make it into a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor. No problem there, right, guys? You, you, you remember the precedent, don't you, Israel? You remember the, the precedent of the potter's clay, Jeremiah 18? Yes, we do. Okay, because if you knew how your program was operating, verse 22, what's God going to do? Why in the world would you ask God to finish your program? What if God willing to show his what? Wrath. What was the next thing on Israel's program? Wrath. Israel, you want God to go ahead and fulfill your program? That would require God to pour out his wrath on who? Vessels. Who does that include? Israel and the world, Gentiles. You see, when God was going to pour out his wrath, it wasn't just going to be, it was going to impact everybody. 
Well, if, he, if he's pouring out his wrath, then what can he not pour out at the same time? Long-suffering, grace, mercy. He's doing this. He can't do both. Keep reading. You can't have the two programs running at the same time. Why not? Well, at this time in Israel, historically. Come back to Acts 7. Where are we historically here? Look at Acts 7. <clears throat> Acts 7, you've got Stephen. He comes up. Verse 51, he lays it out. By the way, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost. Here is God, the Holy Ghost. Well, actually, the whole Godhead. The Word of God just declared Israel to be what? Stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Do you know that word, that thing about being uncircumcised? Genesis 17, it says, if, you're if the man-child's uncircumcised, he is cut off. What's their status here in 751? Cut off. They are of no import anymore. They are not my people. By the way, who is God's people in Acts 7? The little flock, the believing remnant. As he looks at that nation of Israel, the leadership, the Sanhedrin, what's the declaration there in Acts 7.51? You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. What are they? They're unbelievers. Ooh, they're Galatians 2. They are heathen. That's what God's calling them. Stephen's the mouthpiece. God's doing, hey, this is their condition. Their condition isn't circumcision. Their condition is what? Uncircumcision. You follow that? that that's critical. That's why in Galatians 2 when Paul talks about Acts 15 and he says, I'm going to go to the heathen. They're going to go to the circumcision. Who's the circumcision that they're going to go to? Well, the circumcision would be the believing remnant, those that believe, the little flock. When Peter and the guys left Acts 15 and, and Galatians 2, they didn't go run out to the local Jewish temple synagogue down there and try to win a bunch of people to Christ. It wasn't happening. They literally turned their focus to that little flock, that believing remnant. When you read James later in Acts and he... Paul pulls Paul in, in in Jerusalem and says, See all the thousands zealous of the law. The man broke his word. That wasn't his job. His job was to focus in on the circumcision. He's out there keeping the religious scene going. Something going on more than just what you do. Because it starts right here. What's the declaration by God? You are accursed. And it happened right there. So they stoned Stephen. Look down at verse 56. By the way, they didn't really appreciate that message by Stephen, so they gnashed on him with the teeth and took him out and killed him. But what does Stephen say? And he says, verse 56, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, what? Standing on the right hand of God. Come back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Acts. Chapter 2. Uh, 755, he says, but, being, but he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfast into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see. What, what's the posture of the Lord in Acts 7? Standing. Look at Acts 2. Look at verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, What? Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Notice it doesn't say enemies. It says foes. That's a little different. An enemy would include who? Everybody. But a foe is going to be a reference to that unbelieving nation, that apostate nation, one who stands against him immediately. A foe is someone who... An enemy can be out there. A foe is right here, up next to you. That's the idea. Are you friend or foe? You're right here. But what's the posture in Acts 2? He's sitting. In Acts 7, he's standing. 
Now, we don't take the time, but you can go run all the verses in the Old Testament. When the Lord stands, what's he coming back to do? Judge, make war, shake, do a little shaking, a little get on with the program. So when Israel says, why can't he do both programs? Because your program, it was interrupted right at the moment when it would require, the word of God would demand that God pour out his wrath. And it was right on the second. <laughs> it wasn't a minute early or a minute late. It was right there. So when you come back, if you come back to Romans 9, when Paul said, he's talking to Israel in verse 22, and he says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, God is willing to do what? Move on with the program. 9.22. But what did, what's that next word? Endured. With much Long-suffering. Now, who tells us about the long-suffering? Peter doesn't. Paul does. Peter says, I don't know everything. Paul says, consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Peter's got a limited knowledge. Paul's got a complete knowledge. It's about the long-suffering. What did he do? He endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to Destruction. What's his wrath going to bring? Destruction. But it's vessels, plural, to, of, of wrath. That includes Israel. That includes the, na the nations, the Gentiles. So, hey, Israel, you don't want to ask God why he ain't finishing up. Because he interrupts. If he's going to finish your program, you're not going to be left standing here. He's going to destroy you. So God in his wisdom... In his mercy, in his long-suffering, chose not to carry out his plan and purpose in your program, but rather he chose, in his wisdom, to delay, suspend, interrupt the outbreak of the demonstration of his power and his destructive wrath against you and the world. He says, hey, you, you demand God to go ahead? Who do you think you are? You're going to make a demand of God to go ahead and carry out your... You don't want that. You see how Israel doesn't understand their own program. Then you get a dumb thump Gentile who thinks he does, or they do, and guess what? They don't even understand it because what do they say? Well, God's doing both programs. Blah, blah, blah. A little dry mouth this morning. No, he can't. Why? Because in order to do that, he has to do something that would cause the other not even to exist. So Paul continues, verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Again, notice vessels is plural. He's not just talking about the Jews only. He's talking about who too? The Gentiles also. And what now are we? Vessels of mercy. Why? Because instead of pouring out wrath, he poured out mercy, long-suffering. So he changed. He well, next time we'll go into Jeremiah 18. He takes that clay, and what does he do? He forms it from the vessels of wrath he to the vessels of mercy. And you know what? Literally in Paul's message and ministry, Israel was getting shown some mercy. Because what did their program say? You're in unbelief, cut you off, destroy you, wrath. God says, nope, not doing that. That's why Hebrews and the Hebrew epistles will make comments and references to that he was not, well, actually it's Peter. Look at 2 Peter. I, I, you know, people, look at 2 Peter 3. Peter, you, you, 2 Peter 3. You, you, folks, I don't want you to miss this. 
Because what Paul is doing here answers a lot of the nonsense that you hear even amongst grace believers. Look at 2 Peter 3. Look at verse 9. Now this is the answer to the scoffer and so forth in the last days. Verse 4, and he says, where's the promise of this kingdom? You know, you guys have been talking about this. What's going on? Now this is in Peter's day. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is what? Long-suffering to usward. See how to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Usward. Who's the usward? It is not a Gentile. Who's Peter talking to? Israel. God's, he's like, look, the reason there's a delay is God's pouring out long-suffering so that we have an opportunity to get to where? Repentance. And if you want to read about the long-suffering, verse 15, and an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved Paul, our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, wrestle, get them all twisted up, as they do also their own scripture, other scripture, Unto their own destruction. You know what he's saying? Look, guys, you want to know why the interruption has carried on so long and why it's going and why Israel, why we're in this condition? It's because we have an opportunity of repentance. You do. Now, not Peter personally. Peter's in the little flock. He's good to go. But that unbelieving element out there has an opportunity to do what? Well, do what Romans 10.1 says. Get saved but not saved in their program, saved over here in the gospel of the grace of God. How does that happen? P Peter says, listen, you want to know about the long-suffering? Go read Paul's epistles. And everybody uses that verse. Oh, see, he wrote Hebrews. He didn't write Hebrews. By the way, in Hebrews, there's not much about the long-suffering in the book of Hebrews. Sorry, there isn't. It's all about better the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You go read Hebrews. There's not a lot about long-suffering. But where do we read a lot about long-suffering? In Paul's epistles. Is all the Bible written for, to you, for you, about you? Obviously, no. But yeah, and then, obviously, yes. Do we study all the Bible? That's what Peter's saying. Go study everything. You've got it. It's right there. It's available. Get in there. But when you do, rightly divide Paul... Could you imagine being a Jew and read the book of Galatians and circumcision availeth you nothing, <laughs> and yet that is what, a pillar of your belief? I would be earth-shaking. Now go back to Romans 9. So what Paul's doing here is, look, guy, Paul's going to pull now, Jeremiah 18. He's going to pull an illustration out of Israel's history, a precedent that God established. And it's going to be the issue, the picture here of the potter and the clay. Okay? And this picture is how God has dealt with and is dealing with Israel. And the precedent here is something that Israel is very familiar with. God has the right to reshape Israel. He's done it before. And he can do it again. It doesn't violate any of the promises, the covenants. It doesn't violate any of his integrity of who he is. So how God dealt with Israel in her history as he looked over there, the potter. Obviously, that's God. The potter takes the clay. He assesses the quality of the clay. Is it, a, is it good? Is it superior? If it's superior, then I'm going to meld it and work it into a vessel of honor. But if I assess the clay and it's inferior, it's bad, I'm going to do what? Wipe it out and it's a vessel of dishonor. God has that right. So he has deemed periodically in Israel's history, he deems her to be inferior. That's why Hosea 1 in verse 25 here, he's going to go to. 
Because in Hosea 1, what does he do? He looks over there at, in the picture with Hosea and Gomer in the marriage relationship, he looks at that, the bride, and says, inferior. They've committed spiritual fornication. Inferior. And they are, Ichabod, they are not my people. And I am not their God. But then one day, what's going to happen? He's going to reform her into a vessel of honor, remarry her, marry her back, and she will be my people, and I will be her God. Talking about the kingdom. So he reshapes Israel into the vessel that Israel demands to be. God, God never said, okay, Israel, it's time for you to be a vessel of dishonor. No, Israel put herself in that category. He never looks over and says, Israel, okay, it's time to be a vessel of honor. No, Israel put herself in that category. So when you're back here in Romans 9, Paul is talking to Israel. By the way, Israel is a vessel in, in verse 21 there. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Again, to assess it, to look at it of the same lump to make one vessel into honor and another into dishonor. Israel, you're a vessel of dishonor. And instead of in exercising his wrath in that moment, he's going to be merciful to you. He's going to be merciful, long-suffering to you and to the Gentiles. And, and both of you, Gentile and Jew, are now vessels of mercy. Think about you and I. Think about the Gentiles. They were, Genesis 11, they were turned over to Satan. They were assigned to, to Satan. The only Gentile way for a Gentile to ever be acceptable by God was to do the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. That's it. That's why Rahab says, hey, we heard about you and your God, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless me back because I'm claiming the Abrahamic covenant here. And what does he do? Okay, that's what we do. And when they go into Jericho, Joshua sends them over there and says, go get them. They should be only house left standing of the whole city was, was her house. Everything else is laid waste. He goes over, he gets them out, and then they burn the city down, all of it. They don't keep any of it. Why? Because that's what God told them to do. Joshua, when he gets to the end of his days, he says, my generation has done our part. And now it's ready for the next generation to do their part. Problem is, the next generation, they like the gold stuff. They like the best stuff. And they kept it. The sin of Achor and all that stuff. You know, the sin in the camp. Oh, you know. Well, that, they were told to what? Destroy it all. So anyway, back here in Romans 9. By the way, that made them into vessels of dishonor. Anytime you read about Israel having a famine, in Deuteronomy, in the list of the curses, the, the famine, famine of children, famine of food, famine of being beaten by the enemy, all comes from a result of them not obeying the word of God. If they're losing, and if they're in that condition, are they a vessel of honor or dishonor? Dishonor. Who put them there, though? They did. The potter looks at the clay, verse 21. He's got power over the lump. says, inferior, dishonor. I, I think about the judges, the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own sight. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. So they'd go over, and they'd get underneath Gentile rulership. And then they'd start whining and crying, and God would raise up a judge. And as long as the judge was there, everything they were vessels of honor. But man, as soon as that judge died, you know where they went back to? Vessels of dishonor. And then they start whining all over again. And that picture of the second course of judgment and so forth. And the thing is, is who, who did that? They did it. That's what Paul's going to drive down to. So Paul starts here. You don't want God to show his power, Israel. You don't, that power of wrath and destruction, you don't want him to show that. To, you don't want him to finish your program. You want him to do what he's doing now, which is showing mercy and long-suffering. You, you want the new program to be up and running, Israel. 
Because if you don't, guess what? This is what's coming. So the two programs can't run at the same time. You can't have God show his power and destructive wrath, punishment against the world and Israel, at the same time of him being merciful, long-suffering, and gracious. James, it says, a double-minded man is what? Unstable in his ways. That would make God what? Unstable. It doesn't, the two don't mix. So Paul here, directly dealing with Israel, by the way, that's who he's talking to. And he's letting Israel know that God didn't intend for both programs to run together at the same time. Okay? Now, we got five minutes, so we'll let you go early. Okay? Jeremiah 18, we'll get into that next time with the potter and the potter's the clay and everything. And we'll work, we'll work through that. And we'll work through these verses of what Paul's doing and why Paul brings it in. Because there's a precedent set. And Paul, again, remember, Romans is a court case. We're in a courtroom. And he's looking, he's prosecuting Israel here. And he says, remember, you have a precedent in your own history. And it's case law, Jeremiah 18. And they pull that out and they say, see, you know how God works with you in the past. He's doing the same thing now. So don't you dare call God on the stand. Because what are they trying to do? Call God. They, well, they're not trying. They are putting God on the stand because you, verse 20, you made us this way. You did it. And Paul's like, nope. Nice try. Next question. You know, and now off he goes. Okay? All right. Don't Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the book of Romans to help us with uh, questions and things that do come up from time to time and for things that we can get a, a direct answer from. And we thank you, Lord, for you pouring out your mercy and your long-suffering rather than your wrath. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.